Hey, guys. How are y'all? You guys seem depressed today. Are y'all doing okay? I know it's first week of school and everything, but y'all seem kind of down in the dumps, man. I don't know what the deal is. Um, so you guys came in, and I'm like, hey, like, hey I hope you had breakfast, because, uh, you know. Uh, so welcome to uh, the Outback. If you want to turn your Bibles, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2 today. And um, I just want you guys to know how much internal conflict, before I decide to go Old Testament on you guys, um, I have a lot of internal conflict for the last several months. I'm like, man, can they handle the Old Testament? And so um, hopefully we can, we can do this the next uh, several weeks. Uh, but we're going to be in Joshua uh, about the next two months. And um, uh, Joshua chapter 2 today, quick review from last week. Uh, we talked last week about um, the people of Israel. They were set free from Egypt, and they wandered in the wilderness for how long? Remember? It's a number. All right, 40. 40, how many? 40 days, 40 months, 40, 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so God was letting the generation die off that had been set free from Egypt because of their unbelief and because of the whole golden calf incident. And Moses, of course, disobeying God and what he did. And uh, so now Moses also has to die off before they can enter into the promised land. And Joshua is the new leader of the people of Israel. And I am sure as they're about to enter into the promised land, their fears have to be many. They have fears about um, what it's going to be like once they cross the Jordan. They have fears about who they're going to encounter. And they have lots of fears. And you're going to see a big theme of this book, we talked about it last week, is uh, fear and courage. And you're going to hear a lot about fear and courage as we get into this book. And you heard a lot about it in the opening chapter last week. And this is a huge theme for the book of Joshua. And you're going to hear, we're going to have several things that we do throughout this series that are um, like standalone messages and other things we're going to do throughout the series um, that we're going to tie into this theme of fear and courage. I think it's important for us to focus on that as we study this book. So why does God tell the people of Israel and Joshua to be strong and courageous? And I think he tells them this because he knows they're scared. He knows they're fear, fearful as they're about to enter into the promised land. And we said last week that having courage does not mean you're not fearful. Courage does not mean you just throw off fear and suddenly fear is no longer and you just rise up with all this self-made courage and you go do what God's called you to do. That's not what courage is. I hope you'll see through this book that being courageous means doing what you're called to do, even though you are fearful. This is why I think God says over and over, be strong and courageous, because he knows the people. He knows Joshua is probably shaking in his boots. Well, they didn't have boots. They had sandals, but we have boots in Texas, so that's why I said that. Big point last week we said is fear is an opportunity for faith. And you're going to see that, I think, throughout this. And I hope that God is, is stirring something in you as we talk about this concept of fear and courage. That fear is always an opportunity for faith. You and I, we tend to retreat from things that are fearful. In some sense, that's good when it comes to things that could cause death. But when it comes to things God's calling us to do, and things that feel kind of dangerous in that regard... Fear is an opportunity for faith. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2 today. 
And if I asked you to rank the coolest jobs in the world, I would bet that spying, espionage, as they call it in the movies, would rank at the top, or one of the top. How many of you guys love to watch spy movies? Raise your hand. Uh, about 10 of you, so I guess it's not real, not real popular. Um, but CIA spy-type films tend to attract a certain demographic, and I guess they're all sitting over here and over here um, this morning. Uh, but, but there's a guy named Aldrich Ames. Got a picture of this guy. You probably don't know who this guy is. But there's a movie about him called The Traitor Within, and for over 30 years, he was a mid-level spy in the CIA. And then he became a double agent. That means that he started working for the other side, and he's a CIA agent, but he's also working for the Russians. And they're paying him money. The Russians are paying him money to give them information. Over the course of nine years, Russians gave him $2.5 million in exchange for military secrets. He also told them about double agents in the Russian KGB, and so they would pursue him and try to figure out, okay, who are our double agents so we can kill those guys off? So hundreds of Russian agents were executed because of this guy, because of his information. Now, um, this all came crashing down February 21st, 1994. He was arrested. He was somehow found out, and now he's spending his life in prison. Now, for most people... Working for the CIA isn't like the movies, isn't like that. I've t- I think I told you recently that um, my sister-in-law's dad was in the CIA. And, and I knew him for several years before I even knew that. It wasn't like a secret. It was more of like he was just had a career after the CIA where he was like 25-year career doing other things. So I said, hey, what is your Kate? So my sister-in-law, her name is Kate. What's her last name? Tate, all right? Her name's Kate Tate, all right? So that's um, unfortunate for her. But um, I'm like, you could go by Catherine, but she chose to still go by Kate. So that's her name, Kate Tate. And uh, her dad was in the CIA, and I didn't even know that for the first few years of me even knowing him. So when you find this out of it, you're like, your dad was in the CIA, and I had no idea. And I talked to him like maybe every couple years at a family events. And so once you know that information, like, you're picking the guy's brain. You're just like, tell me everything. Tell me everything that you know, you know, what he can tell me anyway, you know. And, uh, and he's just a fascinating guy to talk to. This guy was in the 80s during the height of the Cold War against the Russians. He was um, involved in, in monitoring, whatever that means, uh, the Russian space program. That's a big deal. And so when you meet someone who has this kind of a job, it just sounds like intriguing. It sounds like this is a big, big thing. And I love hearing the stories. But why does espionage seem so glamorous? Here's why it seems glamorous. Because on the one hand, the job seems pretty important, right? On the other hand, you get paid to be sneaky, right? And who wouldn't want that? I mean, you get paid to be deceptive and to sometimes lie, Like, all the things that you were told not to do as a kid, like, you get paid to do those things at a high level. And you might get cool, I don't know if they have contraptions, like, do I get, like, a phone inside my boot? Like, how does that work? But that's how we picture it, right? When you think of these kinds of things. But here's why spying is such a 
big deal because in wartime, information is everything. It's everything. So spying is not some new thing. It's as old as war itself. And so today's a spy story in Joshua chapter 2. We're going to hear about someone named Rahab. And to the Canaanites, the people that are already in the promised land, the, the enemies of Israel, to the Canaanites, Rahab is going to seem like Aldrich Ames, this guy that we just saw. A traitor. She'll seem like a traitor to them. But to the Israelites, she'll come to be viewed very differently. So we're going to spend some time in the story, and then we're going to get to uh, what's the story behind the story? What is God doing through the story? So look at Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from... I, just, I can't say that word in church. I just can't say that word right there. But you can read it on your own. As spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. All right, this is already kind of an intriguing plot line, right? And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Verse 3. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So I want to make a a few quick observations about this story. First of all, Joshua sends spies. Is this an act of faith or an act of doubt? I say it's an act of faith. It's not an act of doubt because he's just doing his due diligence. When God says to do something, it's okay to put a plan together. And have a plan and, and, and follow your plan. The second thing, they go to a house to a house of a prostitute. Now, why do they go here? Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they did know. Maybe they're trying to blend in. This is a place where there'd be a lot of traffic, right? So they're trying to blend into the that, that part of the city. Maybe that's just who lived. The text tells us that she lived in the city wall. Her house was a part of the city wall. So that just is the that just might be where she was, and that's, where, that's just who lived in the city wall. These men, if you look, here we are in verse 2, and as soon as they show up, verse 2 says, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. These men are horrible spies, right? By verse 2, the cover's blown. They, they show up, and not only do they know the king, so the king of Jericho knows who they are and why they are there. That's the definition of a failed mission if you're a spy, right? I mean, you can't let the king, the person in charge, and also him know who you are and why you're there within however much time passed here in the story. So the king sends these men to Rahab's house. 
And then what's also surprising is that Rahab protects them. Now, why is she doing this? She's, she's the enemy. Why is she protecting these men from the king of Jericho? We'll find out why in just a few minutes. But before we get into that, I want to um, put before you, there's a moral dilemma in this story. And it's not the main point of the story. I'm not going to make it the main point today. But I want you to discuss this. I want you to think this morning. And you're going to have a little bit of debate at your table here in a minute. Here's the question I want you to answer. Was it right or wrong? Go to my next slide. Was it right or wrong? Uh, is the slide in there? Maybe I don't have a slide that says this. thought I did. All right, here's the question. Was it right or wrong for Rahab to lie to protect the spies? Was it right or wrong? Go ahead and discuss for a few minutes. And this is like, should not be easy. This should be a complicated question. So make it complicated. Play devil's advocate. Feel free to have discussion at your tables. Was it right or wrong for her to lie to protect the spies? Discuss. Okay, again, I'm not trying to make this the point. It's just a quick thing I wanted to discuss with you guys. But um, we can all agree that her intent to protect the spies is good, correct? Her intent is good. We can all agree on that, right? Uh, but, but, but besides that, um, how many would say she is right to lie? Raise your hand. All right. How many would say she is wrong to lie? Raise your hand. We have a bunch of, like, non-committal people in this room. You're like, I don't know. It's too early. Don't ask me hard questions. All right, so I got, like, ten on each side. How many are undecided? Man, there's, like, three. So the math is not adding up in this room at all. (laughs) All right, so I was really surprised. I thought you guys would be like, yeah, of course it was right to lie in that situation. But you guys are scared for some reason to make a commitment. You're like, it's Dave's the youth pastor. He's going to call me out and tell my parents that I said it was okay to lie, and I just don't want to do that. I'm just going to go hide in the back. Um, so here's, this is a complicated deal um, because some people believe that it's always wrong. So I'm, I'm getting historical here. So someone like St. Augustine, uh, John Wesley, they, these are ethical discussions. Is it ever okay to lie to someone? They would say no. They would say, even when saving a life, trying to save a life, it is never okay to tell a lie. They would say that any kind of untruthfulness ultimately can denigrate the gospel and the truthfulness of the gospel. So they would say it's never right for us to tell a lie in any situation, is how they would, they would frame it. They might say that maybe there was another solution that she didn't know about. Maybe God was going to blind the guys as they walked in if she didn't lie. Others believe that there are exceptions to the rule against lying, and this would be people like Martin Luther, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They said that ethically there could be times when, um, when trying to save someone's life in those situations that that would be permissible. Now, I'll explain the second view a little bit further. Some who hold the second view, they would raise questions like this. They would say, is it wrong to deceive someone if that person has evil intent? And they might use arguments like this. Is it okay to put a beware of the dog sign on your, on your house if you don't own a dog or if you own a chihuahua? Right? 
Beware of the chihuahua. <laughs> he will bite your toenails, right? Or putting up a security sign. Listen, or putting up a security sign when you don't have a working security system in your house. Or what, what about lying or deception in military matters, right? That's an option. What if you're a spy in the CIA and you have to tell lies all the time and have this whole different persona and deception is involved there? What if you're an undercover police officer making a drug bust? Do they have to be deceptive as they do their job? What about someone who is a police officer negotiating with a hostage taker? Are the police obligated to be truthful to the hostage taker? So it's, it's complicated, right? It's a little complicated. And their argument would go like this. It would go like this. If someone has evil intent, then they have forfeited their right to the truth. Is how they might frame that. Now, you're going to ask me, well, Dave, what do you think? And this is the fun part as a pastor, because I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to ask you guys to have this discussion over lunch with your family later today. All right? So those are the kind of the options. Those are the different ways of looking at this, this dilemma. Um, but, it's, again, the point of this story is not to draw some, like, ethical conclusion. This is kind of a sidebar thing. But here's what we do know. We know that her intent to protect these spies was an act of faith. And here's how we know that. You're gonna, I'm not going to read the whole passage here, but you're going to read on. If you have time tonight, read this tonight. But Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 to 16, I'm going to summarize that section for you. Rahab says to these spies, she says something like this, I know God has given you this land, and I know that we are all going to be destroyed because your God is the one true God. She says, we've heard all about you. We heard about the Red Sea. Everyone here is terrified of you. The phrase that's used in this chapter over and over, she says, our hearts have melted because of who your God is. In verse 11, she says, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is her confession, and this is her faith. So, so her intent to hide these spies no matter how she did it, her intent was and motive was good, and this is a sign of her faith in the God of Israel. And then she goes on and she begs them to please spare her, spare her parents and her siblings. There's no mention here of a husband or kid. She is um, called a prostitute in the story. She has no husband and no kids. So they promise her that they will spare her when they do come and invade Jericho later on. And yet they say, under one condition will we do this. In verse, look down at verse 17. It says, The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. They give her this scarlet rope, saying she must display it outside the window, and she lowers the rope from the window, and then they climb down. After hiding out in the hills for a few days, these spies then return back to Joshua, these two men. So that's the story. Now I want to get to the story behind the story. And what is God doing in this, this 
uh, chapter 2 of Joshua. We get a clue whenever we read the last verse of the chapter. Look at verse 24. This is after they've returned back to Joshua. Verse 24 says, And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So we see in the last verse of this chapter that the point of God letting these men go and spy out the land and and talk to this woman Rahab, God gives them something tangible to hang on to. We talked about fear and courage last week. And I think sometimes in our most fearful state, God can give us a tangible, um, hopeful thing to hang on to as we are in the midst of our fearful and insecure state of mind. And I think this is what God allows the nation and Joshua and the leaders. This is their first big event, crossing the Jordan. And God gives them this, this tangible moment, this tangible event to hang on to, to say, yes, we know that God is at the center of this. And I think God does that in our lives, where he, he can give you these, these tangible moments of grace and hope where he didn't owe it to us, but he gives them to us out of his grace. Something to hang on to whenever you're in a place of fear, whether it's a conversation or something you're reading in the text or something that someone says to you just to encourage you. And this is, I think, what this event is. It's, it's to serve as a, as a vote of confidence, knowing that God is behind what they're about to do. So let's talk about the story behind the story. This is an act of grace for Joshua and Israel, but it's also an act of grace for Rahab. So the first point I want you to understand about this is that God often chooses the outsider. God has a way of choosing the outsider to fulfill his purposes. Rahab's an outsider in every way. She's from Jericho. She's not an Israelite. She's from the other side. She's a woman in that culture that might be frowned upon. She has no kids. She is a prostitute. She lives on the margins, literally in the city wall. She is on the outskirts of the town. And yet somehow she has this faith and this belief in the God of Israel. She believes in who he is. She believes in what he will do. It's amazing when you look at this that she has this much, this kind of faith and this much faith in a God she hasn't really heard that much about. She's just gotten second-hand information about this God. And yet she finds she's believing and, and trusting and has, has put her faith in Him. And so because of where she's at, the outsider becomes the insider. Becomes an insider. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about uh, the sin of a man named Achan later on in Joshua. He was an insider. He was an Israelite, but he lacked faith. It led to his death. Rahab was an outsider, but she had faith, and her life was spared. So imagine that. You've got Achan in a few chapters. You'll see him in a few chapters. And he's the, he's the insider who lacks faith, and you have the outsider, Rahab, who has faith, and it, it didn't make a lot of sense. It sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? 
But it's not all that surprising because I've seen this kind of thing before, and I think you've seen this kind of thing before, where I've seen many students come through here where they grow up in a solid Christian home, a solid Christian family. Mom and dad, at least on the surface, appear to be teaching them and, and not just teaching them the legalistic version of Christianity, but really teaching them the gospel and teaching them grace and mercy and love for God. I've seen that family walk through our church and yet have one or two, or maybe all their kids, just not really buy in and not really see the faith in that way and just totally go off the deep end and say, you know what, I'm rejecting all of that. I have seen in the body of Christ many times where the insider, the church kid, just rejects all of it and lacks faith. But then I've seen families where someone comes in these these doors and they're just hungry. And I begin to hear about their story and their family and their you find out that there's no real mom or dad in the picture. Maybe they're, they're physically not in the picture. Maybe they're physically present, but spiritually and emotionally absent. And yet this, this student seems so hungry for God's Word and so hungry for leadership and so hungry for... And it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I look at that student and I always think, Man, how in the world are you even a Christian after what you've seen? And sometimes it's, it's, it's families that claim to be Christian, but horribly abusive or horribly legalistic. And yet that, that kid has a way of, God's given that kid the grace to slice all that up and acknowledge, you know, what mom and dad are doing, I don't think is even Christianity, but I want to follow Christ. And I've seen that as well. And so it's, it's interesting how sometimes the outsider can have faith and the insider can lack faith. And yet you see this in the book of Joshua. I think sometimes when, when we grow up with this, we aren't as hungry for it. And when we don't grow up with this, we're a little more hungry for it. And uh, when I was in high school, I've told you before that, you know, my parents are Christians, but my dad wasn't like the spiritual leader in our family by any means. And, and I had friends that their dad was the spiritual leader of the family. And when my friends would complain about some things their dad, like, yeah, dad's trying to do the devotional thing again, or dad's trying to do this or that, and they'd complain about it. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I would, I would love it if my father would do that in our family how can you say you don't you don't appreciate that like i would i would kill for that and so my challenge to you is if you find yourself in that same position where you just sort of take it for granted because of what your parents are how they're leading and guiding you um don't take it for granted because this is where your heart becomes hardened because you're an insider and you're taking it for granted. And this can lead you to a place where you don't, you don't have a true faith because you're just like, yeah, yeah, I've heard all that. And yet we see outsiders who have great faith. And we see this, I think, in the life of, uh, of Rahab. So we worship a God who chooses the outsider. 
And if you're sitting in here this morning and your, your life is kind of like the outsider, you're not the typical church family that you might think of when you think of church, um, I want you to know that we are thrilled that you're in here this morning. We are thrilled that you're sitting in here with us this morning. You are not here by accident. And I know it can be hard to be in a place where you feel like an outsider. We worship a God that chooses the outsider. This is what he does. And I'll let you in on a, on a little secret that all the people who seem like insiders were all really outsiders. We're all truly outsiders. And so all insiders are really outsiders. And if you can't really grasp that, let me show you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and thir- to, thir- to 13, where it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It doesn't really matter if you grew up as an insider. You're really an outsider. We all are. So we can't think in terms of insiders and outsiders because without Christ, everyone is an outsider. Without Christ, we are all Rahab. We are, it's all of us. We don't deserve to be part of the people of God. And yet God, in His grace, allows outsiders to become insiders. I want you to see... Um, this next idea here. When we realize that we are all outsiders, it changes how we see other outsiders. It it totally shifts how you view things when you recognize where we all came from. Jesus has this way of of bringing unlikely people together. You see it among the twelve. I'll remind you that in in the twelve disciples, You had a guy named Simon the Zealot and a guy named Matthew who was a tax collector. Zealots hated the Roman Empire. Tax collectors worked for the empire. Imagine that little relationship, right? Both men followed Jesus. And you will see throughout church history, in every church context, you will see unlikely people being in fellowship with each other because of the gospel. And this is a good and godly thing. You will see later on in Joshua, you will see that Rahab's life was spared, but she also got to join Israel. She joined Israel. They didn't just save her and leave her. They saved her and brought her in. And she became part of the people of God. And later in the Bible, we see the nation of Israel remembered Rahab for her faith. So this is at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, where it says, go to my next slide. 
By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You'll notice that whenever she's mentioned in the rest of Scripture, they always say, Rahab the prostitute. And you can imagine, she's probably like, come on, guys, like, can we just drop the label? That was a long time ago. And yet, I think the writers do that very purposefully because of God's grace. It might not seem like something gracious to keep calling her Rahab the prostitute, but I think it's a reminder that, yes, this woman, in spite of her past, she was the outsider became inside. And she becomes part of Israel. And this is, this is God's offer to anyone who would consider themselves an outsider, whether you're, you don't believe yet, you're not, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian yet, or maybe you're someone who, um, you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, but you still feel like you're on the fringe, and you don't quite belong in the people of God. And I would say that this is, um, you have the same invitation that God offered to Rahab to be inside. And I don't mean that to be like a club. I mean it to be part of the people of God, the, the people that God just graciously works through because of his mercy and grace. That's all it is. It's not a club. And if Rahab teaches us anything, listen, if Rahab teaches us one thing, it's that there is no sin that can keep us from God, that can keep us on the outside if we put our faith and trust in Jesus and his work for us on the cross. Not only did Rahab become part of the people of God, Israel, but in Matthew 1, we get to see something really amazing. Look at this. I want you to show, I'm going to do this kind of step by step here, just one thing at a time. There was a man in Israel who married Rahab. And he he married Rahab. I can't fathom this. There was a man who knew of her past, that she was a prostitute, and she becomes part of the people of God. And this man, this Israelite, married her. We see it in Matthew chapter 1. I can't wait to meet this guy one day in, in eternity, in heaven. And I'll be like, dude, you know the name to fish after you? Did you know that? You know? I mean, this guy, this guy married Rahab, became her husband. And then watch this. You may not know this. Uh, I guess we call him Salmon, Salmon. I'm not sure how we pronounce his name. But, um, so they have a son. His name is Boaz. Does that sound familiar? Boaz is the guy that married Ruth. All right? So Rahab is the mother of Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. They have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. This is King David. And then David is in the lineage of Christ. And so look at the mercy and grace of God. He allows Rahab, this prostitute, to be the great-great-grandmother of King David, the man who wrote much of the Psalms. It's mind-blowing to see what God 
Um, Jesus' blood relatives to some crazy characters. And I think it's because he's wanting to communicate to us that his blood is for everyone. His blood's for everyone. So if you're an insider, this should change how you see the outsider. If you're an outsider, this should change how you see Jesus and the gospel and the cross. I want to pray for you. God, thank you so much for your your gospel. Thank you so much for um, the story of Rahab. Such a simple story, yet so profound. We know that you long for the outsider to be brought inside. We pray that this is a place where that can happen. Your body, the church. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and discuss some questions at your tables for a few moments.